Welcome to Peer Innovation, the podcast with Leo Batari and me, Randy Cantrell. Building on our previous shows, The Year of the Peer and What Anyone Can Do, we turn our attention to helping business leaders build high-performing teams. We'll talk with a diverse group of thought leaders who will share stories and insights that will help you and your teams achieve new heights. If you believe there is strength in numbers and that meeting the challenges of the future can only be achieved if we do it together, then join us for the conversation. Our guest today is Phil Simon. Phil is a Carnegie Mellon graduate. He is a business scholar. He has authored 11 books, and today we're speaking with him about his most recent book, published just this year, 2021, entitled Reimagining Collaboration, Slack, Microsoft Teams, Zoom, and the Post-COVID World of Work. We welcome Phil Simon to the show. And we welcome you back to another episode of Peer Novation, the podcast. The website is peernovation.co. You can also go to his name, gentleman in the red. He is Leo Batari, coming to us from Carlsbad, California. I'm in Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas. Our special guest today, coming to us from uh, Arizona, where he got his first COVID shot this morning, Phil Simon, <laughs> 11 times an author and just an all-around big-brained guy. Welcome, Phil. It's a big head, not necessarily a big brain. <laughs> Thanks for having me on, Randy, Leo. Well, I've got mine. I've got mine covered up. It's a bit chilly here in DFW. So, Leo, I'll let you kick us off. Yeah, it's great. You know, um, 11 books and the latest one, of course, I don't think could be more timely. Uh, this idea of reimagining collaboration. Uh, and I guess I first want to touch on just, just this idea of collaboration to begin with. You know, how people, what it means to them and how you might define it, Phil. Yeah, at a high level, Leo, it's really pretty simple. Just working together with other people to get things done. I thought that it was important in the book, though, to delineate among adjacent terms. So, for example, I can collaborate without communicating with people. It's unlikely to go very well, but it's possible, right? So um, there are these terms related to collaboration, but don't quite overlap. And a smarter person than myself once said, success begins with a common understanding of terms. So things like productivity, um, I can be productive by myself, um, but that doesn't make me collaborative. Or I could coordinate, as I write in the book, a number of different courses. Um, and there's an example of um, someone uh, in a college professor capacity who had to coordinate what wasn't a particularly good collaborator. So um, you know, I try not to overthink it. I'm kind of like my book on communication, message not received. Communication is just making things common. And collaboration is just working together with other people to get something done. Uh, it's important to note that collaboration, Leo, is not the goal because I can collaborate really well to make Blackberries. That doesn't mean that people are going to buy Blackberries because last time I checked, it was in 2008. Uh, so... Ideally, though, if an organization does collaborate well, then all things being equal, I'll bet on it being more successful than an organization that doesn't. But just because you collaborate well doesn't mean that people are going to buy your particular widget or mousetrap. So one of the things you talked about was obviously this use of, you know, Zoom and Slack and Microsoft Teams wasn't, you know, started because of the pandemic, obviously, but the, the use of it and the more pervasive use of it has been accelerated obviously, because of it. Um, but what do you think have been some of the biggest challenges for people to have in, in moving 
to a distributed workforce and working remotely, uh, what have been some of the biggest challenges as you see it uh, for these organizations? What is just as I see it, you know, I've listened to lots of podcasts, read lots of articles. In fact, I was listening last night to um, a discussion on Clubhouse. Are you guys familiar with that? Mm. And there were a bunch of luminaries, including Stuart Butterfield, CEO and co-founder of Slack, Matt Mullenweg, who's the co-founder of um, Automatic, the company behind WordPress, which powers something like 38, 39% of the world's websites. And there are a lot of people discussing the issues that they've had. So uh, these aren't just my opinions. I like to base them in facts. I certainly have my opinions and I make them known in the book, but I wanted to write a book that wasn't just a screed or a manifesto, uh, but was something backed up with legitimate research apart from my own experiences. The long story short, lots of challenges. Um, First and foremost, I think we're trying to replicate in-person experiences online. Now, in some cases, that's easy to do, right? If we were going to have a meeting we can certainly fire up Zoom, although doing it for six or eight hours in a day, Zoom fatigue is a real issue. So I'm not trying to minimize that. Um, In many cases, we are trying to adhere to some of our legacy processes, even though there are tools that would allow us, as I write in the book and give some examples of, to simplify or redefine those processes. Uh, In many cases as well, we're using just these tools in a minimal capacity. Right. So we're using Slack or Teams as email 2.0. We're using Zoom as a souped up version of Skype. And you can certainly do that, but that's kind of like using Excel to key in a list. You can do that, but you can do a whole lot more. So um, when I was writing Zoom and Slack for dummies, it was just becoming obvious to me based on the reaction when people said, look, there's too much in these books. Well, that's because there's a lot in there. And just because you only want to use Slack to send a direct message or DM doesn't mean that that's the only application of it. In fact, there are four or more. And even though uh, come, oh gosh, September or um, October of last year, when it was obvious that the pandemic wasn't going to end anytime soon, and it seemed like everyone was writing a book about the future of work, none to my knowledge took the approach that I did, which is that these collaboration hubs, Slack, Microsoft Teams, Zoom, Google Workspace, Workplace by Facebook and others can really serve as these hubs or these digital workplaces. And then you can connect these third-party apps to them with zero technical skill. So I think once people get their arms around the hub spoke model of collaboration, there'll be no turning back because it's not like I can go up to Randy in the future where we're hybrid right? Or maybe purely remote and tap you on the shoulder. Because if I miss you on Thursday, you might not be in the office for another two weeks. So I wanted to write a vendor agnostic book that opened people's eyes to the true power of these collaboration tools. And hopefully I was successful. Phil, how much of this is mobile or should more of it be mobile? That's an interesting question. Um, Yes, there are mobile apps for Slack and Teams and Zoom. A lot of people don't even know that. And you can set different notification settings for different devices, Randy. So you might say, for example, in Slack that I don't want my teammates to bother me, right? I'm on vacation. I'm hitting the links. I'm on a beach, whatever. However, um, if my boss needs to get in touch with me, that's okay. So I think that it's going to be increasingly important to draw boundaries. In fact, I just saw a Wall Street Journal article this morning about how we're always at work now, right? And I felt this way for a long time. Um, I've said many times that I'm always at work when I'm at home, but I'm not always working. 
So I struggle with this notion of electronic leash and how we can't detach ourselves from th those devices. And as Cal Newport writes in his book, Deep Work, we don't do particularly good work. We're not terribly productive when we're multitasking, right? Multitasking is bullshit. You're multi-changing, right? You're switching back and forth among different applications. So for this podcast, I'm not checking my phone. I've turned on do not disturb on my computer. Um, I don't want someone to bother me because that's disrespectful to you when I don't think I'll give a particularly good interview. The notion that we should constantly be checking Slack or email or any other text-based tool communication is akin to my going up to Leo in a physical office every four minutes and tapping you on the shoulder and going, got a sec, got a sec, got a sec. That's going to inhibit you from doing deep work. So I like the fact that I can communicate with people on a mobile device. But at, when I was a college professor at ASU, I would not install a Slack workspace for my classes on my phone specifically because I didn't want to be bothered with student concerns. However, if it were some of my clients and something was urgent, they could get in touch with me. So I think that we have all these options to configure devices and alerts. It's not just the binary uh, with these tools. Um, and I like the fact that it's there as an option. If need be, I don't have to pretend like it's 1999 and go back to my home and dial up to my computer and dial into the VPN. But make no mistake, the fact that you've got a mobile device on your hip absolutely could be a net negative in my opinion. I was reading the, uh, I don't know, this has been a few months ago, the, the, whenever it came out, that 2021 state of remote work that Buffer produced and found it interesting that 90, 97 plus percent of the people that they surveyed, and I don't remember the exact number of people they surveyed, Phil. They did it in collaboration with some other folks, and you likely know way more. Well, you do know more about this than me. But I found it interesting that in the post-pandemic, people that preferred to work, at least some remote, remotely, was fairly static from the years prior to the pandemic at about 97% of people who, who preferred to work remotely. But then kind of the fascinating thing is some of the big challenges. Well, the number one challenge was I can't unplug. I'm working just like you, you mentioned. I'm, I feel like I'm always at work. But then the next two that were tied, I think, if memory serves at 16%, were collaboration and communication, you know, were the challenges of this this virtual kind of remote remote working are the do the cultures of the organizations do do the way that they work physically my curiosity and all that's a long-winded preface to the question the way that we work in person versus the way we work remotely and before we started recording You've got college professor experience. Leo does as well. And we were having this brief conversation about us putting too much emphasis on trying to replicate the in-person experience. I'm curious about the, the in-person culture, translating that to the remote culture. And if that's even the proper way to go about this. Yeah, it's a fascinating subject, Randy, and I certainly don't have all the answers. I didn't see the buffer state of remote work one, but I've seen some of the other ones. And if it's anything like the other surveys or polls that I've seen, it's a nuanced issue. So yes, most of us would prefer to work in a hybrid capacity if we can. Salesforce, I think it was six weeks ago, announced that there are going to be three buckets of people in the future, people who needed to be on site all the time, 
right? So if you're security or maintenance or food preparation, that's kind of hard to do remotely, although with maybe with robots in the future, who knows? Um, and then you've got workers who need to be in the office part of the time. And then you've got a bucket of people who never need to be in the office, or maybe they come in once a year for team building. So, um, but if you cut through the data, here's another interesting fact. Younger people want to be in the office more because they're looking for coaching. They're looking for leadership. Um, whereas older people like myself, and I'm a few years short of 50, feel like, you know, I pretty much know how things work. Um, but I can see how someone who's right out of college, to get to your example from before, it needs that informal coaching or training. Um, you're right. Culture is an enormous part of it. And how do you translate that into an online world? There are tools out there that try to simulate a virtual office. You might have seen some of the 8-bit ones where you, like a video game, walk into a, an office. There's one called, uh, gosh, what was it? Um, Plagely. I'm probably mispronouncing the name. There's one called Sokoku. Um, and that's an interesting attempt at doing it, but I don't know if it will replicate the in-person experience. I mean, how do you translate a culture online? How do you do that when some employees have never met their peers? A friend of mine at the gym recently told me that she got on a plane and flew to Florida for the precise reason of meeting some of her teammates, some of whom she had never met before. Now, are there tools out there that can simulate collisions and random interactions? Sure. Have you guys ever heard of Donut? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's an interesting attempt. And you absolutely can have a 30 minute discussion with someone about whatever. And a lot of companies use it. It's a, it's a useful tool. One of the companies I profiled in my new book, OfferUp, uses Donuts, had some success with it. But they are very much thinking about a future in which people will come to the office at some point because team building matters, right? Breaking bread with your colleagues matters. Right. And it's one thing to do a Zoom happy hour, uh, you know, share a joke or an animated GIF or GIF in Slack. But I don't know if that will ever be able to replicate the team building that takes place uh, when you're all together, even if you're doing some cheesy corporate exercise. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Um, so there's a couple things that. So, first of all, I guess my uh, experience teaching hybrid courses and and even in programs where you watch the relationships that students can build with one another, they don't have to see each other often, but the importance of that personal interaction is great, but it's amazing how the relationships that they have with one another don't tend to just, you know, live on, they grow uh, over time. And that is actually kind of fun and great to watch. But I think the other C word that I want to bring up is cooperation. Now I don't have any research around this. It'd be great if you know some studies on it, because I'd love to see it, but uh, anecdotal evidence from a lot of the CEOs, from CEO peer groups that I lead all the time, have there's been this idea that, they, that there's been a certain irony. And actually, it took pulling people away from the workforce in the workplace to actually bring them closer together. Because they will, here we are, instead of going to a central place, we're in each other's homes, essentially, right? And we have the artifacts in the background, and we have, you know, the kids running around and the dog or cat or jump, you know, going across somebody's screen. And this idea of kind of tapping into people's shared humanity and creating a little more patience and a little more understanding for what we're all going through and seeing each other as people, not just, you know, coworkers. Um, I'd love to get some thoughts on that because for many, 
And there's been this idea that they believe productivity is up in many respects, or at least they were noticing spikes in it early because of the fact that people were essentially just being more forgiving and more cooperative with one another. Hmm. I had heard that people were more productive because they didn't have the commute. So you could justify hypothetically, oh, sure. if, you, if you used Time. to work nine to five, right? And your commute was 7.30. By the time you got home, it was 6.30. And most commutes aren't fun. Um, so you were just so wiped out, even though you could you know, check your phone on the train or in your car, even though you obviously shouldn't do that. Um, yeah, empathy is, I think, really important because we are seeing people who, in some cases, don't have great connectivity at home, right? They're in an area that has no broadband, or you see people's kids because schools are canceled. And how do we accommodate that? Um, I don't, again, I don't have all the answers for that, but yes, we can absolutely see, uh, you know, the fact that I'm a big fan of Rush. Randy, some right. things never, never change. <laughs> or one of my favorite movies is The Usual Suspects because you see the posters in the background. And I've actually, for some calls, not used the Zoom virtual background, even though you can dummy those up and have some fun with them. Um, so people can get a little window into my personality. I just booked a, a speaking gig and um, the conversation started off with trying to get a COVID appointment. It was like registering for or trying to buy concert tickets, right? With everyone <laughs> over their browsers hitting refresh, refresh, <laughs> refresh. And um, somehow we landed on um, the, one of the, I guess, clients. And we were at the same Rush concert in um, 2002 in Hartford, Connecticut. So that was an interesting way to get to know someone um, virtually. Uh, that uh, doesn't necessarily take the place, but let's just say partially resembles if I had gone by Leo, your office, and I saw that you had a Pink Floyd Dark Side of the Moon poster. And I'd probably talk to you about that because that's one of my favorite albums. So um, we also, you know, we see the good and not necessarily the bad, but the real life struggles. And I do think it is important for us to be empathetic as a college professor, just as an example, um, I was willing to make exceptions for students who said, look, I'm a single mother. I've got two kids. Schools are closed. I cannot do the work. So could I get an extension or an incomplete? And for that student, I'd say, absolutely. Uh, when the student said coronavirus ate my homework, not so much. <laughs> it's been interesting for me. And I, I only do in-person coaching stuff here in the DFW area. But my local clients, I have and many of them we we met in person we of course met in person the first time but after that i'm like i'm happy to give you an additional 30 minutes if i don't have to commute i'll come i'll come to your office it's fine but a hundred percent of them take the more give me more time you know give me give me more th give me 30 more minutes in our sessions as opposed to you know whatever the standard is so that's been kind of an interesting thing, you know, for me of, of, I wasn't sure if people would, uh, would pick one or the other. Yeah. And you, I would imagine trust your judgment there. If it's the first time you're meeting with a client, you might prefer to do it in person. Whereas if I've been working with you for the last two years, we've got a rapport, uh, much the same way that, you know, if I'm going to be, let's say as a manager giving performance reviews, I certainly wouldn't do it over text. I probably don't want to do it over Zoom, although that's better. You know, ideally, if it's a difficult conversation, we have to do that in person the same way. Some companies are reimagining the idea behind an office, 
right? Why is it basically a cube farm in which we're doing individual work? Should we break down walls and, and not have necessarily an open office because all the research indicates that they inhibit productivity and people take more sick days, there's no privacy, it's, it's a real issue. But if we're going to be brainstorming about an idea, we need a, a space to do that. Um, or will it, will it be sort of a hub for offices, right? And then satellite offices, in which case, you know, people will get together if, let's say, the company's based in Manhattan, there's a satellite office in New Jersey. So people could come in once a week without having to deal with a hellish commute. So uh, bottom line, no one knows what this is going to look like. And I think that it's going to vary by industry, by company, by culture. Uh, but I will say this, I, I don't see how you get around uh, using these internal collaboration hubs, right? You're going to need... Um, a way of, of tracking things. You're going to want a historical record, even though it may not be ideal to go back and forth over Zoom or Microsoft Teams. Um, there's a permanence to those communication that email lacks. And I could tee off on email for as long as you like, but I'll let you guys talk. Are you surprised that email still is as pervasive though as it is? Yeah, I saw a stat the other day, Randy, that during the pandemic, people sent something like an additional 42 billion emails. Unfortunately, I don't have the denominators, so I don't know what kind of percentage increase, but it isn't small. Um, and I still buy into the notion that email is beneficial for this podcast. You connected with me via email. And we went back and forth and scheduled it. And I sent you a text before, make sure we have the right time and the shot and all that. But if we were working together on a project, there's no way I'd send you emails back and forth, right? When I get an email about a potential speaking gig or someone wants to buy a bunch of copies of one of my books, that's a good email, right? But if Leo and I aren't understanding each other, and I make this point in my 2015 book, Message Not Received, after seven emails, the eight probably isn't going to work. And ditto for a Slack DM. So email is just one club in the bag. Uh, it's not the only one. Do you guys golf? Yes. yes. Yeah, so, I mean, you, you wouldn't, putt with your driver unless of course you broke all your other clubs like uh, Tim Cup although I think he broke everything but the seven iron but again that's a different discussion that's right so you know different tools for different purposes you've got a bunch of different arrows in the quiver and email is an important one but it certainly isn't the only one and email was never designed for collaboration again when let's say Randy leaves the company all that correspondence basically dies in his inbox whereas with Slack if you were communicating in channels and you move on from the company or get transferred then there's basically a record for every one inside the company to see your files, your communications, your decisions. And if I join the company, I can see that historical record. You're not going to forward me 602 emails. So, um, you know, these tools are very powerful. They're very user-friendly. They're very intuitive. If you've used Facebook or LinkedIn or Twitter, I'm pretty sure you're going to figure out what the at symbol means or what the hashtag means. And you don't need any kind of technical expertise to stitch together some of these third-party tools or, or, or spokes that I mentioned in the book. And you wind up creating a more cohesive work environment. Uh, and I would argue collaborate better and avoid some of the problems of you know, email overload or trying to find documents because they're in a, an enormous inbox or in Dropbox or Microsoft OneDrive or Google Drive, but we're just not sure. You know, it's really interesting. So I, I want to pivot to tools a little bit <clears throat> because we all know everyone kind of has some kind of threshold. I don't care if they're using Microsoft Word or PowerPoint or whatever. They get to themselves, get themselves to a spot where they know how to use 
it a little bit of its capability, but usually they're leaving a lot on the table to the point where they try to do something and they think they have to go and Google and find some other kind of app to do something that PowerPoint will already do or something will already do. Um, let, let's pick Zoom just for, for fun. What are, are there some capabilities that Zoom has that people just aren't using that if they did, you'd be thinking, here are one or two, three things that if you did on Zoom, it could change your life or change your experience or make something just a little easier for you. Sure. And, and, and right, um, Randy and Leo, I completely echo your sentiment that people get comfortable using a certain number of tools or a certain limited number of functions within those tools. I'm sure that you guys heard of the lawyer who had turned on the cat filter during a call with attorneys and couldn't figure out how to turn that off. Now that was a funny joke and it wound up, uh, wound up um, prompting Zoom to write a blog post about how to turn that off, which I guarantee wasn't on the roadmap uh, uh, two days before that happened. Um, but I think that lessons like that actually resonate with people and, oh, I better not mess around with these tools because I might screw something up or look like a jackass. Um, but yeah, Zoom's got a ton of functionality that I think, uh, again, I did not write a short book, but I'll just name a few. <laughs> so just as one particularly valuable example, you invited me to this podcast with, that we're recording over Zoom and it went through email. That's fine. But I could also add you as a contact, just like Skype, just like my phone. So anytime that you have a green status symbol, right? I could just hit a button and boom, we're calling. I don't have to send you an email with a link. Um, we don't have to sign in and authenticate. You're just there. Um, there's also webinar functionality. So for something like this, we don't have to do a webinar, right? But if I'm doing a talk for a client in front of 300 attendees, I don't want them as meeting participants who can just chime in, right? I want to assign a delegate to that webinar who can handle questions so I can get through my talk and then take questions as opposed to constantly being interrupted. Um, there's also, um, if you guys remember Vonage back in the day, VoIP, Voice Over Internet Protocol. Mm. And you might say to yourself, why would anyone need a landline? Well, there are plenty of call center reps who aren't going to give you their cell phone numbers, and they shouldn't. So that's an entirely different um, part of the Zoom suite. And then finally, there's Zoom telepresence, which I started hearing about mm. in the late 90s with Cisco. So basically, this hardware it's a dedicated Zoom appliance that lets you do signage and whiteboards and virtual meetings, but it's only for Zoom. And, and Microsoft's creating something very similar to that. So there are lots of features, even within the Zoom meetings and chat piece that most people don't use, never mind these other three uh, parts of the Zoom suite. It's, it's a criminally underused tool in general. And when people say it's just for video call, that's kind of like saying that my phone my iPhone is only for making calls. It can do that, but I'm fond of the Gary Goldman joke about um, that. Calling your phone a phone is like saying your Lexus convertible is a coffee holder. It'll do that. <laughs> it'll, it'll do a few other things. Phil, how you know, is uh, Go ahead. Just, just one quick follow-up, because one of the things I was talking to someone about the other day was, you know how you can be in these meetings and someone makes a point. And then four people believe they need to parrot that point just to show that, you know, this is where I think the reaction buttons on Zoom can be awesome for, for tightening all that up. Just give a yes. thumbs up. Just hit the reaction button. Good. Everyone gets that four or five people agree with what yes. that person just said, and you can kind of move on, right? <laughs> or using a poll tool like Simple Poll or Poly, right? So again, when people treat 
um, Slack or, or Zoom or Microsoft Teams as email, uh, they're really missing out on what it can do. And, and I've come full circle on emojis. I remember a keynote that I gave in 2015 <laughs> in your neck of the woods, Randy, in Austin. And someone asked me about emojis and Slack, I think had just launched, but certainly wasn't nearly as popular as it is today. And there were other collaboration tools like Yammer and, and IRC goes back to, gosh, 1998, I think. Um, but I asked someone, well, you know, it's contextual, right? So if I've known you for five years and you give me the thumbs up emoji, okay, that's cool. But if your CEO emails you and you respond with an emoji or an animated GIF, you know, you may be emoji guy <laughs> forever in that person's mind. <laughs> so do you want that risk? But no, emojis, I think are incredibly useful. One of my mm-hmm. faves is the one with the two eyes. So you're basically saying I'm looking into it and you don't have to say, I will get back to you. I know some people who get quite frankly annoyed if you email them with, okay, and you should, <laughs> because that is a waste mm-hmm. of time, right? Versus going into Slack or Microsoft Teams or Zoom and seeing that, you know, four people have put thumbs up and there's one person that disagreed and maybe that uh, makes us have a conversation. But no, I mean, I completely agree with you and, and no one wants to kind of like reply all on email, right? I mean, I've gotten probably 10,000 pointless emails of people going good with me and, and no one wants to not respond, right? Particularly if someone senior gets copied because, you know, it's like you're not working or you're not there. So yeah, these tools, again, I think emojis aren't that hard to understand and you can even create custom ones. So with my students, they know I was a big fan of the show Breaking Bad. I'd create a Heisenberg emoji because I think that these tools also allow you getting back to one of the earlier questions about personality. You know, you can show your personality in the workplace, right? You can create, you know, I've got a virtual reality type avatar most of the time when I'm using Slack or Microsoft Teams. And that's just me having fun. Now, would I do that if I were emailing clients for the first time and I haven't established that relationship? Probably not. So I get excited about these tools. I think they really open up a lot of possibilities and quite frankly, can make work less overwhelming and even more fun, certainly more contextual because you're not waiting through emails going, okay, who is this person? What does this person want? What do I have to do with this information? Again, I get a message in a Slack channel and let's say, Leo, you're the head of marketing. Well, you're probably going to email me something. I'm sending a message about something marketing related. I don't have to filter out all this stuff. And over time, that cognitive load really wears you down at the end of the day. Early on. You go ahead because I have one more quick question, but I want you to go ahead because you have. Well, if it's along this train of thought, then (laughs) if it's along this train of thought, then go with it because I got a question about the history and the future of tools. Yeah, and and that would be uh, you know maybe a a better close. What what I wanted to know, uh, what's your what's your advice to leaders who, many of whom are using what I would refer to as the I don't trust you dot com software, you know, to make sure they're (laughs) monitoring, you know, their people in a way that um, you know they want to get. I guess there's this idea, you know, we've talked to a lot of folks about this with regard to when you're in the office, it's about being there. When you're at home, it's about being responsive. And there's that whole aspect of things in terms of, of um, you know, productivity, blah, blah, blah. But I think there gets to a point where especially CEOs who were dragged kicking and screaming into this world to begin with start to get really get antsy about like, people working from home and they can't see people as if that were, you know, to your point before people were at work, but they weren't necessarily working either, you know? So it isn't just about being home. So what, what's your advice to leaders about maybe 
just both philosophically and or if there are any specific tools that you think are fair in terms of really you know, trying to get a handle on productivity at the same time, don't send a message to your employees who many of whom have been working their ass off in the face of a lot of personal challenges, sure. right? And, and, and sending them the wrong message. Yeah, we could have a separate content, um, podcast, <laughs> Leo, just about that subject. That's a meaty question. Look, if people want to slack off, no pun intended, they're going to find a way, <laughs> right? And you can always lock down a computer with applications, but guess what? For a long time now, we lived in a world of bring your own device, right? So uh, I also worry about companies that measure productivity too stringently. Um, you guys ever heard of Goodhart's Law? Mm-mm. It's one of my faves. Um, I discovered it when I was looking at my teaching evaluations. And in a nutshell, Goodhart's Law means that once people know how they're being measured, they'll more or less gain the system. So as a great example, if you're a nail factory, you say, we're going to pay people by the number of nails that they produce. They're going to produce you know, billions of tiny nails that are smaller than thumbtacks that are completely impractical. So we can't do that. It's got to be the size of the nail. Okay, fine. Then they're going to spend time building nails that are the size of barred ships, right? Which are completely impractical. So once people know how you're judging them, they could conceivably alter their behavior. I'm not trying to dismiss the fact that people will use tools to, for lack of a better term, screw around or goof off, but that's always been true, right? And you can lock down a PC or you know restrict Wi-Fi access. That doesn't mean that I can't take out my phone and play. I don't know. Do the kids play Candy Crush anymore? I can't even keep track. Um, and it's funny because researching the book, I discovered that when the pandemic hit, a lot of companies, rather than investing in Slack or rolling out teams, rolled out employee surveillance software. And, and look, to be fair, putting on my security hat for a minute, there are legitimate issues with having employees dialing in or uh, dialing in, I sound so 1998, <laughs> connecting to your company's network without a VPN. Right. Most people don't know what VPNs and, and password keepers are, and there are legitimate concerns. And I know hackers have gone after homes because they tend to be less secure than the enterprise. But I think that you have to strike a balance. Um, one of my general pieces of advice is don't penalize everyone for the actions of a, an employee. I remember back in 2000, I was a consultant at Lawson Software, and my bill rate back then was anywhere from 225 to 450 an hour for a custom class. The company was making a lot of money off me and that's fine. But I submitted an expense report and it got rejected. And I go, that's strange. I had $12 for lunch. That doesn't seem totally unreasonable. <laughs> and I had the unmitigated gall to purchase bottled water. Yeah, we don't approve that. Okay, why? Oh, because some employee bought two cases of water on his per diem, put it in his car and drove home. Now, why are you penalizing all these consultants and making them drink out of the tap, right? When one employee um, took advantage of the rules. So I hate to give the stock consulting answer. It depends, but you know, it's nuanced and let's not forget that the world has shifted, right? Stuart Butterfield was, has made this point in a bunch of different interviews, the CEO of Slack. We've got employees who have moved out of San Francisco to Sacramento or to, I know, da um, Dallas and Texas in general already, as, as you know, is experiencing a, what's a Tesla and Oracle are coming there. Yes. So if you are too draconian with your employees about any number of rules, you can't say, well, we're the only shop in town. Where else are you going to work? They could say, well, I'm going to work 
wherever I want, because increasingly companies based on this one year experiment are comfortable with people working anywhere. Um, and because of that, I'd argue Churchill said, never waste a good crisis. You've got this opportunity now to dramatically increase your potential labor pool. You can find less expensive employees because an engineer in Iowa is going to make less than an engineer in San Francisco, right? Cost of living apples and coconuts, not to mention corporate real estate. I know in Austin, Texas, it was something like 50 bucks per square foot per month. That adds up, right? What if you and forget San Francisco or New York or Paris or Tokyo? So this is a new reality and hopefully my book will help people navigate it, but I've got more questions than answers. I'm not smart enough to write a book that covers every kind of scenario for every kind of company and every kind of industry. Uh, but I'm proud of the fact that this is a holistic text that doesn't just say, oh, install Slack and you're good to go because these technologies don't exist in a vacuum. Um, they're very much human and how we work um, isn't necessarily a formula. Phil, it seems to me that the beginning of many of these online collaboration tools really emerged from the software develop, developer world. And I'm curious, as you look into the future and you see tools for collaboration and all of the nuances behind why we need to improve those, do you see it shifting from just that ecosystem to those of us that aren't in the software development world? Oh, I'm not to. looking at that wrong at all. No, I, I mean, in the book, I write about how Basecamp and Automatic, again, the company behind WordPress, were way ahead of the curve. Even with mm. remote work, uh, GitLab has gotten a lot of publicity. They've got a head of remote work. I think his name is Darren Murphy. He's done a lot of interviews and podcasts, and I listened to some about how they've been a distributed company for a long time. So these issues that are um, causing senior leadership to struggle, they've addressed for a long time. Now, Certainly some things will still come up and they'll have to deal with them, but they have this institutional muscle memory. And, and Randy, it's not just a switch that you turn on. Um, just because the tool exists doesn't mean that people are going to use it, never mind use it properly. And the question becomes, what do you do with employees who say, I, I refuse to use Slack? I'm an email person. Do you tolerate that person? And if so, what message are you sending to everyone else? Why is that person special, right? If your team's productivity or collaboration or both suffer because you have to always remember, oh yeah, you won't find Leo's messages in the Slack workspace because he's an email guy. Well, the knowledge repository is less valuable. The network effect isn't nearly as strong. In chapter 15 of the book, I put on my Swami hat and prognosticate about the future of work. I think it's going to look a hell of a lot like that Joaquin Phoenix movie, Her, about the guy who falls in love with the operating system. We're going to have this incredibly smart hub, thanks to AI and machine learning, that's going to be able to make enormously accurate predictions. It's going to answer questions that people don't even think about asking. If I've got a performance review with a new millennial, maybe it alerts me to recent research, not because I Googled it but because it knows that that is something valuable. I'm no expert on AI or machine learning, but I do know this much. I've read a bunch of books. It's all predicated on data. So the sooner companies can embrace the HubSpoke model and move away from email as their quote unquote internal collaboration tool, I quite frankly think the better off they'll be, damn it. <laughs> we appreciate your time. He is Phil Simon. You can find him at philsimon.com. We'll put all kinds of links. It's a drop the mic moment. <laughs> That's uh, right. We, we, We've really enjoyed having you having you on the show. We appreciate you, the listeners, you, the viewers. He is Leo Batari. I'm Randy Cantrell. Special guest today was Phil Simon. You can find 
all kinds of ways to subscribe to the podcast by going to leobatari.com. That's L-E-O-B-O-T-T-A-R-Y.com. And until next time, we'll see you. Thank you for joining us. To subscribe to the podcast and learn more about how you can engage Peernovation for your organization, contact us on the website at peernovation.co. Till next week, remember the power of we begins with you.